Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, the best horror movies of 2023, and also the final Horror Weekly episode of the year. We asked more than half a million horror fans online what the best horror movies of the year were, or their favorites, and we're here with their answers and ours. And before we dive in, I just want to stay at the start, thank you to you, <laughs> thank you to all of you, the whole community, because we made an entire year's worth of podcast episodes together. We've re reviewed single movies together. We've uh, tackled topics like what were the most uh, emotionally traumatizing horror movies from your childhood? Um, what was the best standalone, not in a franchise slasher film? Who's the scariest movie character of all time? We lived through genuine horror phenomena together, like... Um, how uh, Fall of the House of Usher sort of took over the Halloween season for a minute. We lived through the crash and burns of The Nun 2 and The Exorcist Believer. And we got to see Russell Crowe on a Vespa. So thank you to each and every one of you who follow the pages on social media, who listen to the podcast and subscribe and leave reviews, and who participate in the discussions, especially the subscriber group, which I'll link in the show notes, because you're directly supporting this podcast and helping it grow. But to everyone who comments on all the polls and gets into conversations in the comment threads, I know Facebook comment threads aren't the easiest place to have intelligent conversations, but you do it. So I'm going to go through my picks for the top 10 horror movies of 2023, and then we'll hit the communities. Um, we really synced up this year, much more than last year. <clears throat> so it's uh, there's not a lot of difference. There's a couple major ones that were not overlapping on our lists, but we're pretty close. Now, I got to admit, um, I felt for most of 2023 that it wasn't, it was a good year for horror. Um, it was not, for most of the year, I thought it was not quite as energizing a year for horror as the previous year was. But that shows what I know, because in the last three months of this year, it surpassed last year. <laughs> um, so now I think 2023 is um, ahead of 2022 as kind of the way I would rank them in terms of overall quality, which is really surprising to me. But we'll see, you'll see when I get to the lists that a lot of the movies both you and I chose near inside our top fives are movies that came out relatively recently, which is cool. And like I referenced earlier, and as I always do, I asked on the Horror Weekly pages for you as the community, what were your favorites or what did you think were the best? And sprinkled in amongst the thousands of comments that came back were some like more high level view comments. So, for example, Dustin Lundborg said, I was really happy with this year in horror. We had an overall diverse and interesting mix of avant garde horror, Infinity Pool and Skinnamarink, classic slasher, Scream and Saw. And he he gave this comment before Thanksgiving came out. Um, Eli Roth's Thanksgiving, not today. Um, he continues, Paranormal, Talk to Me and the Boogeyman, Sci-Fi, Totally Killer and Megan, and Religious Dramatic Horror, When Evil Lurks. Good year in horror all in all. Lori Anucci, who is in our subscriber group, thank you so much, Lori, said, 
This was a great year for horror because we got so much great stuff across the spectrum. We had everything. Horror IP, Saw, Scream, Elevated Horror, Talk to Me, Really Elevated Horror, Skinamarink, Classic Slasher, Thanksgiving, Global Horror, When Evil Lurks, Talk to Me. And those are just theatrical releases. There was even more great stuff on streaming. It's hard to pick a favorite when there's so many awesome movies to choose from. And Kelsey Quinn said, When Evil Lurks was probably the best made and most effective horror movie of the year. So much so, so much so that I never want to watch it again. <laughs> However, I think Evil Dead Rise was the most enjoyable and my favorite of the year. So you can see there were people who um, really liked that the year had a lot of different entries in different kind of subgenres of horror. And even when they tried to pick like a favorite or best horror, a lot of times they had to slip in a secret tie vote for another movie or another mention. Um, and I can tell you when I counted up the voting, it was a lot closer um, in competition between movies between last year and this last year was kind of a blowout for the top uh, two or three, if I remember, and then a wide gap in vote and then a few more and then a wide gap of vote and then more. This was all pretty close with a swing of a couple hundred comments this way or that way. We could have had a different number one, two, three, four, et cetera. You get the point. And I just real quick want to mention a couple of the notable movies that aren't in my top 10. Um, so let's start with Skinnamarink, who I know a lot of people are picking as the best horror movie of the year or definitely in their top two or three. And I absolutely grant its originality. I'm not uh, bothered or annoyed by this movie like I know a ton of you are. I like movies that take big swings. I looked ahead to 2024 in terms of the upcoming movies that are coming out, not just horror, but like all movies. And there's such an outrageous number of sequels and remakes that you just got a kind of thirst for um, something that's trying something original. That's not based on like previous IP and Skinnamarink definitely did that. And my experience of Skinnamarink in the theater was really fun. It genuinely unnerved the audience or at least the chunk of the audience that it didn't outright annoy or drive out of the theater, which did happen a little bit. But the problem I have, and I had the same problem with lights out from, uh, I forget which year that came out is that Skinnamarink is based on a much more effective short film called heck. And, um, it's just so hard to pick something as one of the best of the year when there's already a better version of it, but one that doesn't really qualify because I wouldn't put short films in my 10 best horror films of 2023. It's like picking a uh, cheesecake that you're out is out on your table, like this big cheesecake as the best dessert of 2023. When there is a way better single slice of cheesecake sitting in the refrigerator that, you know, tastes five times better that you're just that no one's going to acknowledge or recognize. Um, I just can't put Skinner Rink in my top 10 just from that fact alone. Probably my biggest omission from my top 10, or at least the one that probably will be most notable to everyone is Evil Dead Rise. And again, I feel bad because like there were movies I genuinely disliked 
um, but still had to recognize had craft to them in 2022 that even though I didn't personally enjoy them, I was considering putting on my top 10 this year. It kind of flipped. Like I, I liked evil dead rise. It's fine. I didn't like it as much as the 2013 remake. Um, I, I think it's my least favorite film in the evil dead franchise, even including Ash versus evil dead. But that's a great franchise. Doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. I, again, I had a particular snag with Evil Dead Rise, which was when it was over, I realized by miles my favorite scene in the movie was the opening. And the opening feels like it's not even in the same film, <laughs> right? And it's not like I'm opposed to moving locations to franchise movies. I'm going to fight for a franchise movie that you're probably going to guess from what I'm saying right now, um, a little higher in my top 10 list that did move locations for a franchise finally. Um, so that it, I'm, it's fine. That part's fine. It's just, it was so much more impactful, the opening of Evil Dead Rise, than anything really that followed for me that I just felt like, how do I put something in the top 10 of my list when only one 20th of the movie is what I felt was like truly excellent besides Alyssa Sutherland's performance, which is great. But every time she's on screen, other things are happening. There's other characters involved, et cetera. So it's not like it's all about her. And then the last one to mention here is a movie called influencer, which um, was on in the top tier of a lot of end of year horror lists that I was looking at in the last couple weeks. I hadn't seen it. So I went to watch it and was mildly disappointed. Um, it's a competent film. Um, uh, it's got, I don't know. I don't even want to say it has good acting. I mean, it's fine. It's competent. The whole thing's competent. The problem here is it was so obvious where this movie was going to end from the first two minutes of the film. I honestly felt like I drifted off while I was watching it during a boring moment and kind of constructed the ending mentally. And then when we got to the ending, it was like I was the director. It was shot for shot. Almost like it was so clear where this movie was headed. That is such a, like a major weakness for like a mild twist movie. Influence is really a one note film and reminds me a little bit of a movie from last year called Significant Other, not in themes, but in just be basically being like a one note, almost like an expanded Twilight Zone episode. Um, and that Significant Other was 10 times better than Influencer. So Influencer wasn't even going to get near my top 10 list. All right, let's do my top 10 list. Now, I'm not trying to be mysterious here. I'm doing this for a reason. <laughs> But my number 10 movie I can't talk about now. I'm going to talk about it right before my number one pick. And it's because thematically they have a very, very interesting thing in common that I want to talk about there. So um, we'll talk about my number 10 pick a little later in the episode. Number nine, I'm choosing Megan. Now, I talked in a previous episode about how much I fear that the horror genre is just getting a little gray <laughs> um, in terms of being saturated with themes of trauma, in terms of films being too dark, especially with like streaming compression. If you're not watching it in a theater, if you're watching like the movie movie, I tried to watch the Nun 2 
um, on a smaller screen and it was like, I was just might I might as well just had the whole screen off. It was just as dark as the film. Um, and even when it's not like dark and gray, it feels like horror villains don't have as much swagger as like the Freddy's and the Christine's and the Jason's. And sure, we've got like the occasional art, the clown or whatever, but it just feels like in total, if you spend, if you watch a lot of horror movies during a year, like I do, like a lot of horror fans do, there's just like this a 24 fog rolling in casting a grim shadow over the proceedings and I'm going to root for a little bit of swagger and flash anytime it's really, really well done. And Megan did that, both in terms of the movie in itself. But so I'm not just a horror fan in terms of like the content on the screen. Like, I like it all. I love Fango and the magazines. I love uh, what, you know, I love like how Alyssa Sutherland embraced the the whole Deadite universe um, on social media, interacting in real time with friends, fans doing conventions like with gusto. Like I like everything about horror, including like the outside, like what happens in the real world, including like the marketing and the marketing for Megan was the best marketing of the year bar none. Like if the worst marketing was like, let's say last voyage of the Demeter, <laughs> the best marketing for horror this year was Megan. But it's a really enjoyable film in its own right, just what's on the screen. It's got really good acting, great character character design of uh, Megan herself. Um, and it had uh, decent, for what it was, gore. I mean, it's not by any means a gory movie, but it's not like it went completely light and had no um, bloody moments. Plus, I just love Ronnie Chang. And um, I like movies where... You can read a different villain, kind of like Frank, Dr. Frankenstein versus Frankenstein's creature, like who's the monster, right? That old thing. But in Megan, you can really read Allison Williams, uh, uh, Gemma, as the real villain of the piece. Um, and it didn't really resolve that at the end. It didn't um, absolve her of her crimes or even make you feel any kind of certainty that she wasn't going to fuck up again in the future and do something else bad. So I like that it kind of left a little of that hanging. So I'm putting Ex Machina's Bastard Sister at number nine on my countdown. At number eight, I'm putting Husera the Bone Woman, um, directed, written and directed by Michelle Gara, Garza Severa. This was a pretty slow burn, really interesting visually and thematically. I'm mainly putting it here because it's the one that kind of lingered in my mind and poked at me and bothered me a little bit, not in a bad way, just like uh, scenes would come up in my memory a week or two weeks or three weeks after I saw it. And just, I had to rethink kind of what I thought of it or, or um, e there were even times out when I was out late at night and, you know, it was really dark. It's not like this is like a particularly terrifying movie. Like there are movies that, you know, when I was a kid, if I watched Halloween 1978 and then my parents were like, you know, there's an emergency. The dog has to go out at two in the morning or whatever. I didn't want to go right? like after watching that movie. Um, I want to stay in the light. This isn't that kind of movie, but it it. It's the kind of movie where it's distorting the reality around the main character. 
And if I was out, you know, late at night thinking about like whatever, and then all of a sudden I saw something really weird out of the corner of my eye, I felt like that was sort of the experience this main character, Valeria, was having in the film. And I was like, oh, that's must have been how she felt a little bit, right? Which is really surprising because I wouldn't even think about the movie and it would just pop in. So just for sheer stickiness of the movie itself, I'm, I'm putting it at number eight. At number seven, I'm putting The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And I'm as surprised as maybe some of you are to hear that because... Although I really enjoyed Demeter when it first came out, because I'm a sucker for um, horror set in certain periods of time, um, atmospheric horror. I loved hammer horror growing up as a kid. So um, any movie that kind of like gives you full on, you know, fog and mist and storms and exotic locales, although in this case, um, it's an exotic moving locale. Um, I'm, I'm going to be a sucker for, but it just felt like a miss, an enjoyable miss when I first saw it. And I had no intention of this being in the top of my list at all. Now, here's a weird thing about me, right? Like I hate renting movies. I don't know why, um, I buy them and I probably buy them, uh, too much, uh, but I like rewatching films. So um, it feels like it makes sense for me. And we, we can leave the physical media discussion aside. Like, I'm a fan of that, but, like, I do both. So I live in both worlds. And when movies come out digitally, um, especially since I see most of them um, on new release or sometimes even before release because of this podcast, um, it's fine. Like, I, I, I want to wait. Um, I don't need to, like, purchase them right away when they come out. I usually get them a little after the release when they're on deal, right? So um, all of a sudden, a big clump of horror movies came out that I was like, oh, I might want to rewatch, you know, some of these. And they're all like relatively cheaply priced, or at least they were compared to how the, what they were priced, like $24.99 or whatever they were when they uh, first released on digital. They're down to like nine bucks, eight bucks, six bucks, whatever, right? So a big chunk of them came out and they're, were several movies that came out at the same time on deal after release on digital that that were surrounding Demeter. And if you had made me guess two months before this happened, which one my itchy buying that finger was going to head towards, um, I would have put Demeter like at the bottom. I'd have been like, yeah, that once was fine. I don't need to see that again. Um, and there were a bunch of other movies that I was like, oh, you know, I, these were the ones that, but I, I'll be damned. <laughs> like it was like I was under uh, zombie control. I kept looking at it, looking at it. And Demeter's the one I bought. It was the one I most wanted to rewatch two or three months after I had seen it. Um, it wasn't Pope's Exorcist. It wasn't like, I, I you know, I, there was a bunch of them. Right. So, and I was like, I don't even know why <laughs> this is happening. Like, why do I want to rewatch this again? Like I, I, I've, you know, I have a very clear memory of it. No, it's not like, um, I was particularly impressed by the Dracula design or the effects. The acting was good enough. I loved the captain. I loved Dave. I can't say his last name. I loved, 
um, the protagonist, um, Anna, her character, most of all, um, I thought it was the most sharply defined, but, uh, then I rewatched it and I realized what was happening. (laughs) So there's not much else like this movie, right? Like if, and it's funny because, you know, when you think back to the original Nosferatu or, or a lot of times, one of the very first thoughts that comes into my mind is just that creepy ghost ship, the Demeter just floating up and landing, you know, unexplained, everybody dead, captain lashed to the wheel um, with the fog and the confusion of the people who are like, you know, whatever. It feels like a grim, the start of like a grim fairy tale somehow. Um, And let's say five years from now, there's a haunted ship horror movie that comes out, right? Like uh, a period one, not like Queen Mary, but like around this time. It, the Demeter will be the only movie that comes to mind, <laughs> right? This is a very specific and special subgenre of film. Um, and I love ships set uh, in naval settings. Obviously, I love Jaws, but I love things like Das Boot. This is the year where we all got fascinated by that Ocean Gate submersible thing and and it was amazing like James Cameron was weighing in and uh you know Piers Morgan was talking everyone was talking about this thing and uh speculating what was happening and giving the details of how this operation kind of goes and how the invention was made and we were all like hanging on like every obscure detail there's something inherently fascinating about the threat and danger that such a remote uh suddenly isolated. You're just like loading up your ship on the dock, talking to your friends, joking around, thinking about like the restaurant you just came from. And then, uh, you know, a day and a half later, you're where literally no one could reach you or help you or contact you. Right. So it's just fascinating. I think this movie knew that. I think it got most of that right. And I think it's better than even I thought on first watch. So, Last Voyage of the Demeter lands uh, moors at number seven on my list. In sixth place, and this is fitting, is Scream 6. So I think most of us are aware at this point of the sad um, tale of what's happening to the Scream franchise. Um, Jenna Ortega, Melissa Barrera, the the signed-on director, Christopher Landon, I think his name is, um, all exited the Scream 7, so it, it seems like it would have to be like a complete, complete remix, redo if they actually get to it. Um, and, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there who hate uh, both Scream 5 and Scream 6, um, or maybe even hate all the Screams besides one and maybe two. They feel like without Wes Craven, it should be done, blah, 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 etc. Here's the thing. Optimally, in, in the best world, the best possible world, Um, We would have talented people doing both things in the horror genre, doing original films that are super creative and stuff we've never seen before. And then other ones who are really, really good at doing sequels. Like what kind of world do we want to live in the world where like Chuck Russell doesn't do a sequel to the blob or David Cronenberg doesn't do a sequel to the fly Um, or that's a remake. Sorry. Those aren't sequels. Do we want to live in a world where William Peter Blatty doesn't direct exorcist three or Chuck Russell again, doesn't do Elm street three dream warriors. 
I certainly don't want to live in the world where there isn't Final Destination 2, 3, and 5, all of which I really enjoyed. We're horror fans. We should be rooting for both. <laughs> both original movies and sequels and remakes, whatever. Like As long as the people making them love what they're doing, it's not a pure cash grab, and they're skilled, I'm all for it. And although I didn't totally buy into the core four thing that Scream 6 was obviously trying to like sell us, even though they were doing a tongue-in-cheek meta version of that. They were even making fun of it themselves in the movie, which was kind of a good scene. I like when the the when um, Chad is, you know, he coins the core four and he's looking for like affirmation and high fives and he puts out his high five hand to Jenna Ortega. And she's like, get that away from me. I got to tell you, I kind of loved Scream 6. I loved giving Ghostface a gun. I liked making Ghostface actually savage, like physically savage again. And I love Nev Campbell. I'm all for her like being involved forever if she wants to, but not each time. Doesn't have to be like every time, right? There there can be this kind of feels like more of a spin-off than a true sequel if you leave some of the legacy characters behind, but it gave um, Hayden Pantieri and uh, Courtney Cox time to shine, which I think they really deserved. Kirby was a really good addition to this. And I thought the Courtney Cox's, I thought Gail Weathers moment when she put Ghostface on hold and called him back and located him is one of my favorite scream moments. Um, maybe all the way back to two. I like how it started with Samara weaving. That whole scene was really visually really memorable and interesting. But to me, Melissa Barrera is like the reason to be here because to pull what Scream 6 is trying to do off, you need kind of an almost Anthony Perkins, Norman Bates kind of vibe. You need someone who you believe might plausibly become a serial killer themselves but you're also rooting for because they don't want to. So they're kind of tainted by their own um, heritage and past um, and the extreme nature of the circumstances that keep coming up around them where it's got to just be more and more infuriating that you can't just get on with your life, which, you know, is like, I mean, Wes Craven was doing that with New Nightmare, right? Like, Who's going to think of Robert England as something other than Freddy Krueger? He, he can't move on. He's not going to be able to move on. He can do all kinds of outstanding acting and all kinds of other roles. But when he dies, like that's his obituary. He was the man who played Freddy Krueger. And I think Melissa absolutely pulls off straddling that very difficult living in both worlds kind of performance. And when she goes full Ghostface spoilers, um, at the end of the film and the, they kind of do like the mini Michael Bay camera rotation around her when she's like stabbing and going nuts. Um, you feel it. You believe it when she takes off the mask. Like I believe that she was in that costume, that it wasn't like a stunt person. <laughs> now I have the same problem. I'm sure a lot of you have with scream six and that's why it's not in my top five. It's so abusive <laughs> to fandom to stab every character in a movie multiple times and have it be no big deal to any of them. Like the, the, I, I feel like if you did like a psychological survey, like a secret survey, right. Where you asked people a couple days before they went to scream six, 
how afraid of knives are you? Like when you're in the kitchen, you're like prepping vegetables or doing whatever. Like how afraid of you are, are you of cutting yourself? Like how afraid of knives actually are you? And then maybe three days after Scream 6, slip them a secret survey where they don't realize it's connected. I'd be like, how afraid of knives are you? Their fear is going to go way down <laughs> because knives apparently can't do shit unless you stab someone 200 times. And I didn't like anything about the reveal. I didn't like any of the reveal villains. It wasn't about guessing in advance or not or like whatever. They were just boring, right? But the the thing is, they're not revealed till the end. And what this movie did in a perverse way, and I'm sure this is not on purpose. This is deeper than the filmmakers of Scream 6 prob probably ever would have thought to intend, but... It almost feels like the ghost face outfit and mask itself possesses people to become more powerful, more interesting than they actually are. Like the original Scream, the villains and their motivations were as interesting as the villain. We've passed that point now. I'm not sure you can even pull off a reveal where because we know it's a reveal we didn't know <laughs> we didn't know the dual reveal we didn't know what was coming in the original scream when we first watched it and now how do you do that i mean that trick that weapon might not be in the scream tool belt anymore but in place of it it's given us this ghost face essence that makes it feel like it makes me feel like i would be nervous to like walk around in a ghost face costume for like a couple days straight. Like I would do it on a bed. I'll pay you a hundred dollars to wear a ghost face costume for two days. I'd be like, yeah. And then, you know, 48 hours later, I'm like massacring people. So it's not a perfect movie, but it's got great kills like the ladder scene and the fight with Courtney Cox and her boyfriend and Melissa Barrera at the end. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's better than I expected and definitely more fun. And with Melissa and Jenna walking off into the sunset like Clint Eastwood characters and now knowing that they'll never do that again, it makes the ending like strangely poignant in a very unexpected way. All right. My choice for the fifth best horror movie of 2023 is When Evil Lurks. I did an entire review episode on this film, which is unusual for Horror Weekly. We don't do full episodes on current movies that often. So if you're interested in like the real thoughts of um, not just me, but the community, because I was uh, quoting people, uh, I asked them about when evil lurks, like I always do, because um, this is a joint podcast venture uh, with you. Um, go listen to that episode. Um, the only thing I'll say further here is it's done nothing but grow on me since I saw it. It's not, that I think it's better. I mean, if it if it had really amplified in my mind, it would be higher than five. Um, I think when I saw it, I kind of planned for it to be a little higher than number five. But it's not that it got worse. It's just I think it's weird kind of like weird world building without pointing to the fact that it's doing world building. The fact that it's in a sort of alternate universe, but close to so close to our universe that you almost don't notice that's happening. That move along with its brutality and willingness to not pull any of its punches in terms of its victim set, like children and pregnant women and whoever, anything that gets in this thing's way, um, innocent animals, which I hate. 
Um, it's it's not gotten any worse in my head since I saw it. So if you want like deeper thoughts on it, go find that episode. It's not that far back. All right. Talk to me is by fourth best horror film of 2023. And, um, there's not a lot new to be said about talk to me in, in a certain sense. I really think when people look back like 10 years from now and they're kind of evaluating the early 2020s in terms of horror, it's inescapable that this is one of the movies they're going to be um, talking about uh, for sure. It was a really unexpected um, original-ish. Like it's got a lot of DNA of a lot of other possession movies in it, but it's presented like at an angle to a lot of the usual lore. So that part is interesting. But I think where Talk to Me really shines is it is it incorporates a lot of what is going to really be the kind of things you see in horror movies going forward in terms of social media, things going viral, uh, you, the use of phones, um, how teenagers really operate in the world. Uh, and it really captures that in a believable and authentic way. And that's been a real struggle for horror movies to get that right. I remember one of the most hilariously bad horror movies uh, I've seen in recent times. You may be one of the three people that saw this movie along with me. There was a film called Friend Request. And it was like marketed with like Facebook colors. And it was all kind of like social media possession haunting spooky like whatever but the characters were so obviously written by like 50 year old men who like really didn't get the technology and didn't get like you know anything that, that it felt so fake and off even a relatively decent movie like kevin williamson's sick um uh, from this year uh it got the pan early pandemic vibe right but it still didn't feel like um these people were acting in a way that anyone I know really would act that way throughout like the course of the film. Sure. It would get like a moment here or a scene there or like whatever, but it wasn't sustained. It felt like um, you could see the strings from the puppeteer running the, the, the puppet. Right. I didn't see any of the strings in talk to me. And even though it's um, a little more basic and a little less surprising than I think a lot of people who would put this movie at number one might um, believe, uh, all power to them. <laughs> yeah, I could be, I could be completely wrong. I'm, I often am, um, but the the fact that it was didn't show any of the strings and made the characters feel real is an actual achievement for a horror movie and is going to set a standard for that kind of movie going forward. All right. At number three, I have Godzilla minus one. And here's the thing. Um, if I really, in my heart of hearts, felt like Godzilla minus one was a true horror movie, it would probably be my favorite or the top horror movie of the year for me. It would probably be number one on the list. It, it is almost certainly the best made movie all in all, in terms of scale, ambition, what it accomplishes, uh, it's just such a spectacular film. And again, that 10-year window mark of 
what are people going to be looking back 10 years from now when they look back at 2023? I really do think even more than Megan or talk to me or what have you, I think it'll be the year of Godzilla minus one. And again, I did a full review episode on this, so you can go check that out too. I'm not going to belabor the point here and re-review the movie. It's just a, an absolutely fantastic film uh, that I just... I don't like getting hung up on horror definitions, as a lot of you probably have realized at this point. Um, I'm just as happy as considering the horror elements in David Fincher's Zodiac as as anything. Like, I don't, like, rule a lot of things out 100% necessarily. I'm pretty open-minded when it comes to what's in and out the boundaries of the genre. I just, for some reason, want my top horror movie to feel a hundred percent like a horror movie and Godzilla movies are creature features and action films as much as they are horror and with sci-fi obviously too, but is it is by no means worse than either of the next movies I'm going to talk about. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and go now. If you can find it in a theater where it deserves to be seen. Um, oh my God, such a great film. All right, at number two, the second best horror film of 2023, by my lights, is No One Will Save You. My God, what a fantastic film No One Will Save You is. What a surprise. Let's get the first thing out of the way, the no dialogue thing. It's the most obvious thing to note about the movie. It's really interesting. I didn't even notice it was going on for the first, I don't know, like 20-some minutes of the movie. I mean, obviously I knew... It was sort of happening, but I didn't know that it was a thing, that it was going to be like the primary characteristic of the movie um, because it was so interesting that, and it was communicating so much to you non-verbally that you didn't even feel like anything was missing, which is amazing. I think it's hilarious that the alien design is like the most obvious alien design ever with another alien design <laughs> hidden inside of it and then variations on the gray design. Um, in terms of like size and how they move and operate. Um, so it's like the most obvious choice with like a ring of super creative choices around it. It'd be like designing a vampire with like a cape and fangs, but making its arms be arms of fire and giving it three like Satan tails and like more teeth on its feet or something weird. <laughs> like it's such a weird mix of, of um, expected and unexpected in terms of its look. Caitlin Deaver as Bryn has to carry an entire movie on her back and does it effortlessly. So I've said this on this podcast before. My like one my like my highest compliment for a performance and how a character is written is that when the movie or show or whatever it is ends, I feel like that if um, that character walked into a bar I was in the next day, I know how they would behave, what they would say, how they would act. I feel like I've come to know them so well that like I know what's going to happen next because I've gotten to know them almost as well as you get to know like a, a recently acquired friend. And somehow with by saying no lines... <laughs> Caitlin Deaver made me come to know who Bryn is and know exactly how she would act if she, well, she wouldn't walk into a bar necessarily. 
um, she's in like a unique antisocial situation, right? But if like we were hiking, <laughs> like crossing paths in the woods, and um, she, you know, I injured my, I hurt my ankle, and she came across me, I, I know what she would do, and I know that it would be a little weird, <laughs> but I know it would also be kind of helpful, but kind of standoffish, like. I don't know how this movie made us get to know a character without any words in their mouth, but it's like a minor miracle of, of acting chops and, and the writing skill behind like the steering the character herself. It has genuinely frightening parts. There are moments in this movie that are as scary as anything that happened in 2023, which is why like, you know, maybe some of you listening are like, wait, you were just, docked Godzilla for not being a horror movie and now you're putting an alien abduction um, sci-fi home invasion movie up here like this close but it has so many horror elements because it's genuinely terrifying it's like fire in the sky scary in parts the sound design is incredible the use of the tractor beams is so original and a lot of alien abduction movies that tractor beam pull you up into the ship moment is like the achievement of the movie. It's like one of the iconic things in the movie. In this case, the tractor beam is it that is subverted. It's not the the tractor beam hits someone that's not the main character and um it's because the main character pushes them into it and it's just incredible. And then the use of the tractor beam to retrieve uh dead alien corpses to hunt characters um, it's so good. And then there will be something going to do brief spoilers here. So hit like a 45 second skip. If you haven't seen this movie yet and you care, um, I love that when the aliens and kind of the theme of the movie. So poor, I, I can't go into the whole plot, but poor Bryn is isolated for the community shunned by the community um, you know, everyone hates her. No one will even speak to her. The The wife of the sheriff spits on her at some point. Um, she won't even get uh, police help. Um, she's just uh, the complete ostracized black sheep of the community. Um, and when the aliens pull her into the ship, they're clearly doing an invasion of the body snatchers thing. They, they're, they're inserting these throat parasite, whatever the hell they are. Maybe it's them themselves. Um, are getting into human host and controlling them. Very invasion of the body snatchers. And they pull her up after she puts up just an amazing Ripley-esque fight um, for a character who's clearly so unprepared for this kind of thing, um, but does such a good job of defending herself and being smart and um, just fantastic. Um, they pull her up into the ship. And they explore her mind and her thoughts or whatever. And then it's like game recognizes game. They're like, literally, I don't know if this is the true interpretation of the movie. I don't know. I'll, I'll try to in, interview the director of this thing because I'm so fascinated by it. Um, and maybe we can get some answers uh, after a, a year or two have passed and he's less afraid to say. But um, when they probe her mind, like whatever, and then they have this discussion among themselves and they let her go. I think part of it is, you know, the, the trauma she's been through and, you know, that's kind of the message of the part of the message of the movie, et cetera, et cetera. And that's interesting. That's fine. That's not the part I'm interested in for this though. What's interesting to me is the game recognizes game part part. These aliens are like, Oh my God, 
you're an alien too. <laughs> We're aliens. You're alien. That great. And it doesn't mean she's an alien, like from another universe. It means she fits in with her fellow uh, earthlings as well as these guys are going to. They're literally in the same social tier. They're like, we don't even have to possess you. You're as connected to humanity as we are. This let you go. Now, the ending is really ambiguous and like it's haunted me ever since I've seen it. I literally was thinking about it yesterday while I was organizing myself for this podcast and I don't have any more resolution on the exact meaning of it than I did when I first saw it, which I love. I think it's great to do a like a Sopranos go to black, you know, kind of ending once in a while. As long as you're not doing it to show off or to abuse kind of like whatever or because you don't have a better idea. And I didn't feel like any of that was happening here. Um, it's just the meaning, the ending could be read in several different ways that I don't want to spoil. I would love for you to let me know what you think the ending means on the horror weekly Facebook page or on threads, if you care to reach out to me, but, um, I absolutely loved it, but it's amazing that this character ended off in, ended up in such a better position than where she was pre alien invasion. The alien invasion is the best thing that ever happened to Bran. And all that has kind of a bleak um, undercurrent to it as an idea that um, aliens were going to be kinder to her than her own uh, species was going to be. It's probably accurate, but you just don't see stuff like this in horror very often. Uh, After... Godzilla leaves. Tokyo doesn't get out and be like, oh, let's try to lure him back because that was awesome. When um, Freddy is the killing spree is over, Nancy doesn't like wander around bereft because she wishes Freddy hadn't left. Roy Scheider and Richard Dreyfus don't swim farther into the ocean chasing after Bruce. They head for fucking land, <laughs> right? Because you're almost always better off when the horror ends. But in this movie... It's flipped, and I think that's super interesting. All right, now let's come full circle. Um, I'm going to talk about my 10th best horror film of the year and then number one because they're tied together. The 10th best horror film I saw this year is Attachment. Now, this is a Danish film that was released in 2022 in Denmark but was released 2023 here, and... I don't want to spoil this. I feel like most of you have not seen this. Uh, I haven't seen it mentioned in our community at all. So I definitely don't want to give away the surprise of the movie. It's a really interesting um, kind of Rosemary Babies-esque take on uh, two people who are falling in love, dealing with an overprotective and intrusive mother And uh, the dynamics between them are complicated by a demon. (laughs) It's fantastic acting. It's not the fastest or most action-packed horror movie of the year. So you got to kind of have tolerance for a little bit of slow burn. Although it's not, it's got tension all the way through. But the two highlight things here I want to call out are, uh, I mean, everything about this movie is stellar, but the performances, uh, everything. But the two really standout things here to me are the exorcism, quote unquote exorcism scene in this movie where the demon or the, the book as the, as the movie calls it. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a demon handled this way. 
like they trap the demon and I'm trying to avoid spoiler parts of this. So I don't want to give away too much, but like when they trap the demon and the demon is summoned, it has no surprises when the demon arrives. It knows exactly what this ritual is going to be. It knows exactly what they're trying to do. The humans who are doing it are, are, they're not sure how this is going to go and they're not they 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 need to get the name of the demon it's like a valak you know kind of mechanics to this but they also need to figure out not only the name of the demon but what it wants so they're there to interrogate the trap demon and the demon's there to you know whatever its goal is which i can't give away um but it's the demon's complete lack of surprise and then the verbal chess match that happens in the next five minutes is so well done because it's, it's like there's this incredible thing in history where there's this guy named uh, William James Sittis. I think his name is, he had like the highest tested IQ. I know that's a discredited thing now, but like it meant something back when they did it. Um, uh, IQ in history, like hundreds of points higher than Einstein could learn any given language in a day. Um, predicted black holes 40 years before any scientists even did just like supposedly one of the smartest human beings who ever lived. And he sued, <laughs> I think it was the New Yorker magazine for libel. <laughs> um, they called him the smartest man in the world and he just wanted to be left the fuck alone. He wanted no one to know who he was or bother him. So he sued them and said, I'm not the smartest man in the world. And this literally went to trial. It was in a trial in front of a judge. And there were lawyers. And the lawyers had this guy on the stand. And they were asking him questions, trying to prove he was the smartest man in the world. And what they quickly realized is it's very hard to trick the smartest man in the world. <laughs> like every question, every like little lawyer trap they laid, he saw coming from a mile away. Like you can't you can't beat the smartest man in the world in a smart competition. And in this scene with the trapped the book, you realize or Dybbuk, I think it's I'm saying book because I'm such a reader <laughs> that always feels like that's the correct pronunciation to me. The Dybbuk is um is like centuries old and so much more experienced than the humans who have it trapped. And you realize really quickly that they are completely out of their depth. Um, in this match of wits between them and it. And I think that that scene, that whole sequence is truly special and worth the price of admission just by itself. But this is also about a mother who gradually realizes that she is willing to sacrifice her life for her daughter, even though they didn't get along particularly well. Um, or didn't particularly have that much in common. And it's the, the mother sacrifice um, that is what leads into my choice for the best horror film of 2023, which is, at least to me, Birth Rebirth. Now, Birth Rebirth is written and directed by Laura Moss and stars Marin Ireland and Judy Reyes. And I am so excited to tell you people that not only is this my favorite horror movie of the year, but it comes with an amazing little bonus post-Christmas, post-holidays gift um, to all of us. Because I'm not the biggest short film person in the world. Um, I regret that. <laughs> I wish that I was more into them for some reason. I hate getting into a world and exited <laughs> that quickly. Um, but 
Laura Moss did a short film called Friday, spelled F-R-Y space D-A-Y. And this fucking short film is amazing. It's about the circus that happened outside of the penitentiary center where they executed Ted Bundy on the night they were executing him. How people were there like selling merchandise and taking photos of each other having shirts that said burn Bundy burn the Bundy barbecue. And this is just an epic little film that I discovered when I was desperately hunting for other things that Laura Moss did after I finished birth rebirth and was so excited um, because I liked it so much. Now birth rebirth is a Dr. Frankenstein type of tale with Dr. Frankenstein in this case being a woman um, and it's an amazing, exquisite little piece of torture, terror. The synopsis of it is a morgue technician successfully reanimates the body of a little girl, but to keep her breathing, she will need to harvest biological materials from pregnant women. When the girl's mother, a nurse, discovers her baby alive, they enter into a deal that forces them both down a dark path of no return. The character of Rose is like a reincarnated Dr. Herbert West set in our times. This movie is somehow a slow burn, but also super tight. I don't think I've ever watched a movie that felt as propelled forward as much as this with as, as much like zest and like zero fucks given for how gory and how brutal and how dark the implications of some of the things that are going to happen in this movie are going to be um, with the, the, the space and feel to give you like a character study and all the things you get from a slow burn movie. So it's slow and fast. I heard an interview with the directors of this movie who were like, you know, a lot of Mary Shelley, when she was writing Frankenstein, she had suffered miscarriages. A lot of that played into it. And a lot of, their perception of that and and they draw a lot of that kind of theme into this film in terms of like the horrors uh, and choices uh, and discriminations of the system against and f with pregnancy. It starts with this really haunting moment where there's a s emergency C-section being done on a woman and the, the she's fading in and out. And she, you can see the face of like one of the doctors and she says to the doctor, like um, the doctor, sorry, says to her, well, she, the mom is fading it out. She says to the mom, um, the baby's going to be all right. I promise you that. And the mom can just barely get out and like this ghostly whisper. What about me? Like the second you become a parent, you're like marked for death. Like life is basically an uphill, downhill slope. And as soon as you have that baby, you're on the downhill slope and no one cares. And honestly, the real reason I'm putting this, choosing this as my number one, besides it being my favorite, I'm also arguing for it being the best, is it's the only unflawed horror movie I saw this year. As good as, you know, Godzilla Minus One and uh, Scream Six and When Evil Lurks and Talk to Me, they all felt like they had flaws. When Evil Lurks was a little baggy in the middle. Um, Talk to Me was a little predictable. Um, you know, Godzilla Minus One was nearly perfect. But again, it's it's not scary in like the way that a horror movie um, it feels like it should be scary. 
Megan wasn't scary at all. The Voyage of the Demeter was so close to being a great movie, but just couldn't get to great. Like, Birth Rebirth is a perfect little horror gem. Now, there's a really special thing that happens with a very, very few horror characters ever. It definitely happens with McCready in The Thing. It's a character that just gets right to work. It's a character who is is about survival, their own goals, and nothing else matters. They're the straight line of characters. It doesn't mean they're not complicated. They have arcs and like blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's a character who just doesn't have to say a lot um, or even do a lot to convey all the force of personality that's kind of like locked inside there to in their own like secret self. And we have the miracle in this movie of meeting two such characters. And there's an amazing moment that I absolutely refuse to spoil, (laughs) but there's an amazing moment. Well, actually, you know what? Fuck it. I'll spoil it because it was in the IMDb thing. The, the mother who loses her child in the beginning and discovers that her child has been resurrected um, reanimator style in this movie, she bursts into the apartment where Rose, who's my favorite character of the year in uh, horror movies, um, is doing her mad experiments. She's resurrected a pig um, named Muriel, who becomes like a really interesting like kind of side character in this film. Um, and she sees that her daughter is there being experimented on her dead daughter. But because her daughter has been brought back to life by this person, they, she just instantly kicks into, all right, what help do you need to make this experiment go? Like, how do we get my daughter to get more, uh, functional, to stay alive, to get her memories back, to become like a person instead of like gauge from Pate's pet cemetery being like, you know, looking like your child on the outside, but being horrifying within, like she wants the whole package. She wants her full daughter back. She's not going to report her to the police. She's not going to be mad at her for stealing her dead daughter's body buddy from the morgue. She's just immediately in on. All right. And she starts telling Rose instantly, like within minutes of discovering all this and meeting her or maybe not that fast, but pretty fast. She's like, all right, we need to make some improvements in this situation. You leave her alone when you go to work. She can't be left alone. I'll stay here when you're gone. You stay here when I'm gone. They become collaborators. They literally, there are times in the movie where one of them comes home and is like, I'm home. Like, honey, I'm home. Like, they've become like instant bonded partners on a mission, on a fierce mission. They literally only have like, they have a a couple caring moments with each other later because they're clearly, you know, not comfortable that you're at the, the beginning. And one of the hallmarks of Rose's character is she's not comfortable with anybody. Her relationship to her coworkers in this movie is, is, is so funny. Like this movie feels really grim, but it's actually made me laugh a lot of times because her Rose's relationship to her um, coworkers is just her. <laughs> the one coworker comes in one day and goes, or he's there and his phone rings and it's the wife. And he's like, we have to, the school called and our son bit a kid. We got to go there. It's an emergency. And he turns to Rose and says, it's an emergency. I got to go. And she's like, why? He's like, my, my son bit a kid. And she's like, where's your wife? He's like, she's there. He says, she's like, oh, well then you have to go. Like the, when the original mom's daughter goes body, her body goes missing. 
Um, one of the people comes to Rose and goes, what do I tell this woman? We're missing. Her child's body has gone missing. I can't even think of what to say to her. And she's like, I don't know. Tell her her body has gone missing sometimes. She has like zero empathy for people. She's a very, very cold and remote personality. But there's, because there's only one moment of sweetness between her and uh, Celia, the the name of the the mom of the dead child, Leah, um, one sweet moment in the whole shit show of this movie, and that one sweet moment is centering around a starfish, and even the origin story of why that is sweet is disgusting. <laughs> but the impact of that one sweet moment is like more than most Hollywood movies who are trying to generate like sweet, like huge, big crowd pleasing, uh, you know, tear jerking moments. Um, they can't even dream of hitting you the way this movie can hit you with just like this one little nuanced blast of sweetness. The zombie daughter is both um, haunted and terrifying um, and you're rooting for her, but you're also scared to death of her. And then the really interesting way the movie plays with the whole Frankenstein, like Dr. Frankenstein spends his whole career trying to bring things to life. Women can just do that. <laughs> and the way Rose is contributing to the experiment by using her own body is like this movie's version of the storm and the lightning and the electricity. But it's so much harder to do and so much realistic. It's not some bolt from the sky that just all of a sudden wakes up the creature. This is hard work and requires real medical knowledge and rose plays an pays an awful price for doing it she looks worse than any villain in this movie if she's not the villain which she may be there's an amazing scene where rose gets called in for making a medical mistake on a chart and her supervisor who feels really bad for her because she thinks rose has miscarried she's like trying to uh, amp her up and say, look, I, I'm not going to report you. I'm not going to report this mistake, although it could have been really medically bad for the person involved, the innocent person involved. But um, I know you're going through a lot. And when you lose a baby, it's very hard. I went through this and, and Rose is like, so how did you get over it? And the woman is like, you know, it took some time, but you know, I love to read and I love music and I realize you just got to live. And she goes off on this thing and she gets this bigger and bigger smile on her face as she unpacks all the ways that she's brought herself back to life past her own um, own loss of her own child. And when she's done, when she's got this big smile on her face, she's presented all this amazing advice to Rose. And Rose is just looking at her with the most skeptical and chilling look on her face. And she goes, so that was enough for you? And the supervisor's like, get your shit together, Rose. Get back to work. <laughs> oh, my God. This movie is so good. The way Rose gets um, her materials is not only horrifying in terms of the outcomes. There's a shot of a jar on a shelf that we see a couple times that you just never want to see again because um, of the implications of what's going on there. Uh, even though Celia just accepts it. Like I said, they both turn really hardcore. I mean, Rose has been hardcore the whole time, but... They turn into a very hardcore partnership here. Um, but the fact that she needs to find men to do this and the way she manipulates them and the, just the absolute matter of fact, like I when, when there's a guy in a bar, you don't even have to try <laughs> 
to you just all you have to do is go straight for what you want. Like it, it's it's clinical, right? She approaches humanity, live humanity, the way she approaches dead humanity. And there are autopsy scenes in this movie that pull no punches. Um, it's always fascinating being with morgue technicians. This movie is just a dark, dark jewel with a final scene and final shot and trick kind of wraparound thing. You don't know what's happening, but final shot that I will haunt me for the rest of my life. I loved Birth Rebirth. Now, as a community, you voted Talk to Me as the best horror movie of 2023 with Evil Dead Rise behind it. And behind that, Thanksgiving, um, and behind that, Infinity Pool. Now, this is the one big gap for me because I did not see Infinity Pool because Possessor is one of my favorite horror movies of the last five years, and I just I just can't do it yet. I'll get to it, but I just can't. I don't want to not like it as much as Possessor, so I just didn't want to feel disappointed. I didn't want to take the chance. And then behind that, you had When Evil Lurks. A couple of movies that I want to mention from your votes, votes that did um, really got really high up in the list were um, the aforementioned Sick from Kevin Williamson, which got a decent amount of votes, and VHS 85, and also a really good chunk of votes for Cobweb, which I really liked. I just, it didn't quite feel like it could get into a top 10 for me. And then Saw X was up there as well. All right, that's it for this episode and for the year. Happy New Year to each and every one of you. May all your screams come true. And until next Wednesday, have a great horror year.